Good morning. Christ is risen. It is, it's good to be here. A beautiful day. I am a bit heartbroken. Today is my daughter Zoe's 10th birthday. And so I'm, my heart is bi-located. I'm here, but I'm also in Tennessee. This morning when I was talking to her, this right after I woke up and wishing her happy birthday and talking with her, I ended by saying, I love you, babe. And she responded, I love you too. And I said, I love you more. And she says, no, you don't. Because you have so many people to love, and I can just focus all of my love on you. I didn't think I was going to recover from that. I'm not sure that I have recovered from that. So it is, it's a good day. And I'm, as soon as service is over, I'm going to dart out the door and jump on a plane and get back in time for a party tonight. So it's good to be here. I, I want to start by asking you a question. How many of you have ever prayed a prayer you now regret praying? Has this ever happened to you? How many of you have ever prayed a prayer you're glad no one heard but God? Well, social media has made it so that we can have greater and deeper regrets when it comes to our prayer. Almost three weeks ago now, I was scanning through Twitter and saw a prayer someone posted there. And I was immediately unsettled by it, but I didn't exactly know why. At least I didn't know all of the reasons why. And I've been reflecting on that 138-character prayer for almost three weeks. And I've come to believe that it is somehow, miraculously, exactly the opposite of what we should pray. Someone managed somehow to write a prayer that encapsulates all the ways we should not pray in less than 140 characters. (laughs) I want to share it with you as we begin. Lord, in your mercy, do not look at who I am or who I have been But by your spirit, help me to become who I aspire to be. I want, before I make any other comments, I just want you to compare that prayer. Lord, in your mercy, do not look at who I am or who I have been, but by your spirit, help me to become who I aspire to be. And contrast that with Psalm 139, which came to mind for me almost immediately. Psalm 139 begins with, Lord, you are before me and behind me. You know my thoughts are far off. I cannot escape from your presence. Even if I make my bed in hell, you are there. And then it ends with a petition. And this is the the psalmist's prayer at the end of his prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in in the way everlasting. Now think for a moment about the contrasts. In the first prayer... The prayer is for God not to know us. Don't look at who I am. Don't look at who I have been. And in the Psalms prayer, it is search me and know me in ways I can't even know myself. Search the depths of my heart and find there what only you can find there. Expose what needs to be exposed. Search me and know me. And in the first prayer, the prayer is not only God don't know me, don't know me as I am now, don't know me as I have been, but it asks for God to make us what we want to become. By your spirit, let me be, make me to be what I aspire to be. But the psalmist, again, prays the opposite of that. Not only God know me, but lead me into your way. Not let me be what I want to be, but make me what you desire me to be. Now, how is it that a prayer this unfaithful could be written? Now, it could be 
that the writer of the prayer, I don't know him personally, the writer of the prayer is terribly clever, and he meant for me to get from it exactly what I took from it. He wrote a prayer that was meant to be the inversion of faithfulness. It's possible. But it's also possible that in that moment, a prayer came up out of him because of a lack of Christian self-awareness. Now, we talk a lot, and rightly so, about being aware of God, being sensitive to God's presence and God's nearness. We talk rightly a lot also about being sensitive to what others are saying to us, the wisdom that others have in our life. So being God-aware and neighbor-aware is at the heart of what it means to live faithfully. But there is a way of being self-aware that's crucial to obedience and a life of faith. Now, there are, of course, all kinds of diseased forms of self-awareness. We've all known people like this, right, who are diseased in one way or another. They're not self-aware enough, and so they live life kind of overconfident that they're living faithfully, and the rest of us can see the destruction that's coming from them, and they don't have the right kind of self-awareness. An example of this from my own life, I remember I was in a freshman in college, and I had needed one hour to have a full load, and so I took choir. Just the thing you do when you're 17 years old and you need another hour in, on, your, on your semester load. And I really, really, really came to dislike the teacher, the choir leader. I don't even know why I disliked him, but I really disliked this man. And I took to making jokes about him and said some pretty harsh, ugly things about him. And then it was a Bible school, so we eventually had a, a school revival, and the preacher talked about gossip and slander and backbiting and talked about you need to make these things right and so of course I'm overcome with guilt and I go directly to the choir director and I say to him sir I'm so sorry I've thought these things about you and said these things about you and I felt better and it was probably five or ten years later before I realized that I had wronged him more in my confession than I had in all the things I had said about him up to that moment because he had been blissfully unaware that I disliked him for no reason and all I did by making my confession is make him aware, oh, there are students of mine who dislike me, and I didn't know it. And I went away feeling relieved. My conscience was salved in some way. But he had to bear the burden of, I didn't even know I was offending him. That's the kind of diseased self-awareness we need to be saved from. But there's a right kind of self-awareness and self-understanding that's crucial to knowing what God is doing and what others are doing in your life. And I want to try to unpack that. And I think the giveaway that we don't have the right kind of self-understanding is in our testimonies and in our prayers, how we talk about what God's doing in our life or not doing, and how we pray for what we want God to do in our lives. Just recently, I was reading a book by a pastor who's now retired, and he was telling his story, and it was a book written for younger pastors and pastors who are kind of still in the process. And toward the end of the book, he, he begins to talk about his true self and his false self and about how he sees his, his pastoral ministry, his life as a pastor, as the struggle between this false identity and this true identity. And he says this false identity is the identity of a perfectionist, someone who wants to master life. He says, you know, when I was a young pastor and as I was maturing as a pastor, I was always struggling with the temptation to perfect everything to learn the secret, to master the problem, and to be on top of everything. But I learned eventually how to overcome that through the grace of God. Think about that for a moment. Doesn't that sound exactly what a perfect, like what a perfectionist would say? 
I would struggle with this, but I struggled with it until I found a way to overcome it. Not sure that you overcame perfectionism. It just sounds like you perfected perfectionism. (laughs) And it hit me. It's not that this man is not wise and godly. It's just that our awareness of ourselves is so complex that we can deceive ourselves with it. And he had enough self-awareness to know I'm tempted to perfectionism. He didn't have enough self-awareness, however, to realize that sometimes that can take the form of seeming like the work of God in my life. This is what it means to be a human being. We are a tangle of contradictions. And if if we're not careful, we settle for an over-simple understanding of ourselves. This happened, I think this happens in the story of David and our reading of the story of David. I remember years ago, my wife and I were pastoring a church and there was some conflict with some friends in our lives and and they, they had a reading of me that was brutal. They were pretty convinced that I, I was a problem. And my wife was saying, no, that's not who you are. And I wasn't sure what to do. I was afraid that my own ego was getting in the way and that I, I wanted to be humble enough to hear the critique. And so I, I was really caught in this place. And I was reading the story of David. And, and there comes a point in David's life, his son Absalom rebels and there's a coup and David's kingdom is overthrown and David's counselors tell him, flee the city because your son is going to kill you if you don't. If you don't. And David does, he flees, and as he's fleeing the city with his family and his soldiers and his his trusted confidants, as he's fleeing the city, he passes through this narrow valley, and on one side of the mountain, there's a man named Shimei who's throwing rocks at David and cursing him, calling him a murderer and adulterer, and saying, this that you're experiencing, the rebellion of your son, the overthrow of your kingdom, this is God's judgment on you for what you did to the house of Saul. And David's soldiers say, he can't speak to you this way. Let us, let us kill him. Let us strike him down. And David says, no, this may be the word of the Lord. And so remember, I'm in this crisis. I don't know who to listen to. I don't know what's true about me. And I read this story and I think, well, this is the Lord's word. I'm supposed to take it. This may be the word of the Lord to me. And years passed. And I was, again, reading the story of David. And I was reading the story of his death. And again, David is dying, and again, there is a coup. Another of his sons has claimed the throne. And as David is dying, he's going to appoint Solomon as his heir. So there's political intrigue, uproar in the kingdom. David's taking his last breath. And in his last last breath to his son, he says really two things. One, love God. That's the most important thing. Oh, and two, there are four men who wronged me. And I vowed not not to avenge myself on them, but you didn't vow. So I need you to promise me that you'll love God and get my revenge for me, right? Just exactly what you want your last word to your children to be. <laughs> love God and Owen, can you get revenge for me? And one of the men David tells Solomon to kill is Shimei. And he says, he cursed me as I fled for my life. Do not let him go down to the grave without blood. And I realized That first response to Shimei's curse was not a faithful response. It looked like one to me. But actually, all David did was internalize the abuse and let it take up uh, the roots of bitterness in him. And eventually, it came back out of him as vengeance. Now, what David didn't have and what I didn't have reading the story of David is the right kind of self-awareness. 
because I thought I'm doing what the Lord wants. I, I read this story. It looks like what I need to do in this moment is take this critique, take this judgment. But what I was doing in my life was actually just mirroring the same mistake David made, internalizing it without letting the Lord transform it, and then it starts to come out of me in other ways. The same kind of violence and anger starts to come out of me as it came out of David. And eventually, I reached a point where I realized that I have to choose. Am I going to believe what they're saying about me, or am I going to believe what my wife is saying about me? And I I had to make a choice. I had to reconfigure the way I understand myself and so the way that I'm going to pray and the way that I'm going to speak about God's work in my life. Let's come back to the, that first prayer again. There, there are at least three aspects of this prayer that trouble me. And I won't share everything I've been thinking. I've been thinking about it for three weeks, as I said. But just, just a few things about it that trouble me. The first is he prays for God to look away from him. But the psalmist prays the opposite. Look more deeply into me. And I wonder what it is that could lead us to, not, to want God not to see us truly. But I think if I'm honest, there are times that that is what I want to pray. Don't see me, Lord. But a faithful prayer, of course, would be, God, find my deepest brokenness. See me in the way no one else can see me. I'm troubled, too, that the prayer ends with a call for God to make him who he wants to be. Fulfill my aspirations for myself. It seems to me, obviously, a much more faithful prayer to say, God, make me who you want me to be. And yet, if I'm honest, I think that I don't know that I would write the prayer this way, but there is a part of me that wants to pray the prayer that way. Let me be who I want to be. Let me be who I want to be. But I think the fundamental problem with the prayer is that the prayer assumes I have an identity that God hasn't given me. You notice what he says? Don't look at who I am. Don't look at who I have been. The assumption there in the prayer is that I am somebody. And this is, I think, the problem. Because as long as we think we have an identity... That the Lord, and we encounter the Lord already having an identity, we fundamentally misunderstand what his work is like in our life. You remember the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, I want to inherit the kingdom. What do I have to do to receive eternal life? And Jesus says, well, if you want to follow me, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you can follow me. And what does the text say? The man went away sorrowful. Because he's already kept all the commandments. He feels he's right at the cusp of perfection. He's kept all of the commandments from his youth up. And for Jesus to tell him to sell all and and begin to follow him is an affront to his identity. This is what we often miss when we tell that story. It's not really the riches that the ruler is afraid to give up. It's his self-understanding that those riches give him that he doesn't want to give up. He understands the riches as the proof that he is who he thinks he is. I'm the one who's kept all these commandments from my youth up. I'm the one who's right at the threshold of perfection. And I know that because look at how God has blessed my life. And for you to tell me to give all of that up is for me to give up an identity that tells me who I am. But Paul shows us that the only way to follow Jesus is to say, I had an identity. I was a Jew of Jews, Hebrew of Hebrews. 
I was blameless touching the law, but I counted all of that as nothing so that I might know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. It's coming to Christ. The first word he says to us is, if you're going to follow me, you can't have an identity other than the one I give you. Now that sounds difficult, and it is a kind of death, but the good news in it is that means my identity is not accomplished in me by what I've experienced or not experienced. I'm not the sum total of my past experiences. How many of you have heard people say something along these lines? There's much in my past that is ugly and dark. There's much that is painful to remember, but I wouldn't change any of it because it made me who I am. You heard, you heard some version of this? That's not a Christian claim because the Christian says, I'm not who I appear to be because I'm not what my experiences say about me. I am whoever he says I am. And all that has happened to me hasn't made me who I am because there's someone involved in my past and in my present and in my future who's making me more than my experiences can make me to be. This is the struggle, though. How do we accept what God is saying of us instead of what we either want to believe about ourselves or what we fear is true about ourselves? And because human beings are so complex, those things are all tied up together. All of us in this room this morning have things about ourselves that we want desperately to be true, and there are things we're afraid are true about us that we wish desperately were not. And Jesus says to all of that, both to the parts of our identity we want to be true and to the parts of our identity we do not want to be true, he says to all of it, don't hold on to that. That's not who you are. You are not that. Let me make you. I was several years ago with a friend who was, he was experiencing an incredibly difficult time and several of us were praying with him and during the prayer I felt like the Spirit of the Lord urged me to speak this word to him. Until you stop listening to what you're saying about yourself, you will never hear what I'm trying to say to you about you. And I wonder how many times the Lord speaks that over all of us. Stop listening to your own version of your story. I want to tell the version of your story. How many of us here this morning have a way of talking about our past and our present and our future that we're convinced is true and the Lord is battering our hearts trying to convince us to listen to another version? You are not what you think you are. You are not what you are afraid you are. Let me save you from that. And I wonder if we've barred the doors and windows against grace by holding on tightly to the way we think we are, what we're afraid we are. Another friend of mine was telling me a story recently about his young daughter, almost the same age as my daughter. And he talked about how she's, for whatever reason, intensely self-aware around strangers. And he said one day they were at home. He and his wife were standing in the kitchen and looking out the window and they saw her as some new kids on, from the block walk up into the yard. And, of course, they're expecting her to, to run away, come inside, because she's apprehensive around strangers. But instead, she starts talking to them. And they realize, the parents realize, that these kids have brought a kite over and they're asking her to play. And so they start to play. And they're standing there marveling as parents. I mean, such a beautiful moment. Maybe she's coming out of this apprehension, out of this fear. And he said, She was running through the yard, chasing the boy who had had the kite. And he said, I saw it hit her. I saw it hit her face. I'm not the kid who does this with strangers. And he said, she 
in mid-stride, buckled and fell on her face and started crying. I wonder how many times we live our lives that way. We're right in the midst of something, and all of a sudden we get flooded with some kind of self-awareness. I'm not capable of this. This relationship won't work because I know myself. I can't serve these people in this way because I know the kind of person I am. If I'm being incredibly vulnerable with you this morning, I would tell you that I have these kinds of moments when I think about being a, being a dad to my kids. Every few weeks, it floods over me. I can't do this. And I'm either going to believe that or I'm going to say to the Lord, I'm afraid this is true about me. Help me hear what you're saying. And, and the life with God is about constantly taking that self-awareness and offering it up and saying, Lord, I need to know what you're saying because this is all I can hear. Let's look quickly at the story of Peter in John's gospel because I think this illustrates vividly what, I, what I'm hoping to say to you this morning. John's gospel tells a radically different story about the apostle Peter from the one we've, we're used to hearing, the one we think we know. Because in the story we think we know, Peter is the fisherman who encounters Jesus, gives up everything to follow him, makes the confession, the first disciple to make the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the disciple who walks on the water, the bold disciple, the one out in front. But John's gospel tells a a very different story. Let's look at John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. We see that this first encounter between Jesus and Peter. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, John John the Baptist. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples heard him say this, left John and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? Jesus can be so rude. It's not like he doesn't know anyway. And they're taken off guard and baffled, and so they respond awkwardly with with a non answer. Rabbi, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. And I can see them kind of shuffling along, embarrassed. They come where he was staying. They stay with him for a while. And then one of them leaves to go and find his brother. Verse 40, one of the two of them who had heard John say this about Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And notice how the gospel names Peter, Simon Peter. Andrew is his brother, He goes and finds Simon and says to him, we have found the Messiah. Now, here's the joke. John, the gospel, knows we know the story about Peter's confession. That Jesus says to his disciples, who are people saying I am? And the disciples say, well, they're saying you're one of the prophets. Maybe John the Baptist, come back from the dead. But but who do you say I am? And Peter, alone among the apostles, leaps to his feet and says, you're the Messiah. And John tells us, well, the other part of that story is that long before Peter had a revelation from God, his brother had already told him that Jesus is Messiah. Before he ever heard from God, he heard it from his brother. And I think John is telling us this story, not to contradict the story we know, but to remind us that there's always another perspective to our experiences. And the truth here, and it's a deep truth, is that we never hear what God is saying to us until there have been people who've spoken that into our lives. We actually never receive the grace of God until the grace of our neighbors and friends and family prepare us to receive the grace of God. And so the Gospel of John wants us to know, before Peter ever heard the Lord say, 
this is my son. He had heard his brother say, this is the Messiah. And notice what happens next. He leads Peter to Jesus. And as soon as Jesus sees him, he says, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which means the rock. Now remember, in the story we're familiar with, Jesus calls Peter the rock after his confession. Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says in response to him, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My father revealed this to you through the spirit. And because of your revelation, I say to you, you are a rock and I will build my church on you. And yet John says, another perspective is, before Peter made his confession, Jesus had already called that confession out of him. Because the truth is, and again, it's a deep truth, before we ever make our move toward God, he's moved toward us. Before we've ever called on him, he's called on us. Before we've ever acted in faith, he's graced us with the faith through which we act. So this is, this is another perspective on Peter's life. Now, let's come to the last picture of Jesus and Peter in this same gospel. And this is a very familiar passage for many of us, a famous exchange between Jesus and Peter. And I want you to see that in this exchange, which we're going to read in just a moment, Jesus positions Peter to remember these moments he's had with Jesus from the very beginning. We just read the first scene. There are a couple other scenes that come into play, and I'll, I'll talk about them as we move along. John 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, before we read on, let me say, he's calling at least three moments back into Peter's memory. The first moment is that first moment, the first time he met Peter, where he said, you're Simon and you will be called Peter. You will be called the rock. But he's also calling into mind a moment in which Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And Jesus says to Peter in that moment he's washing, washing his feet in John 13, you cannot follow me now. I'm going where you cannot go, but someday you will follow me. And Peter says, no, I'm going to follow you now. Wash my feet and my hands and my head. And Jesus says, no, you can't do it now. And He's calling that moment back. And he's also calling back the moment of, of, of Peter's betrayal. You remember the story? That three times Peter denies that he knows Jesus. Now what's fascinating is the way that John draws our attention to it is in the beginning part of this chapter, which we didn't read, the disciples are fishing. They've given up hope. Peter thinks Jesus is dead. And so he goes fishing. He returns back to the life that he knew. And suddenly on the shore, Jesus appears cooking breakfast. You didn't know that Jesus is a lot like Pastor Janice, but he is. Shows up cooking breakfast, right? And the fascinating detail in the story, it's easy to miss this. In John 18, when we're told about Peter's denial, John tells us, the Gospel of John tells us, that Peter was standing by a charcoal fire. Standing by a charcoal fire, and three times he's asked, do you know this man? Or it's said of him, you knew this man, and he denies it. And suddenly on the shore, Jesus appears, Janice-like, cooking. And you know what the text says? Jesus made a charcoal fire and invited Peter to come. This is a scene in which Jesus is walking him through restoration and bringing back to Peter's memory all three of those moments, the moment of denial, the moment of foot washing in which he was told, you can't follow me, 
and that first encounter in which Jesus named him as Peter. But notice as we read through this story, notice the way Jesus refers to him and the way the gospel refers to him. The gospel is going to call him Simon Peter. But notice how Jesus names him. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now here's, here's some of what's, what I think is happening here. The gospel is telling us a story about a man named Simon Peter. Jesus keeps calling him Simon. But do you remember what Jesus called, said to him the first time they met? Simon, you will be called Peter. Why isn't Jesus referring to him as Peter then? Why is Jesus calling on the name of the man he used to be rather than Peter, the name of the man Jesus means him to be? And why is the gospel referring to him as Simon Peter? Both the name of his past and the name of his future. Because to be a Christian is to have both of those names for now. Every one of us here are both Simon and Peter. We are what our past says we are, in a sense, and we are who he says we are. And those things live in tension throughout our lives. We are all of us, Simon and Peter. We are Jacob, the hill catcher, and Israel, the one blessed by God. We are what it appears we are, and we are what it does not yet appear we shall be. All of that tangled up at once. Why isn't Jesus calling him Peter? You remember that John 13 exchange at the foot washing. He says, I'm going where you cannot follow, but someday you will follow me. Notice what happens next. After he's pressed him on these questions of love, he says to him, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grew old, or when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said, follow me. The moment has come. When I was washing your feet, it wasn't time for you to follow me. Now it's time for you to follow me. Because what's happening here is Jesus is calling him Simon for the last time. Simon, it's time for you to follow me, and I'm going to make you Peter. And I'm going to make you Peter by bringing you into my life. Did you notice what he said to him? When you were young, you did what you wanted to do. But when you grow old, when you mature into what I want you to be, you will stretch out your hands and be taken where you do not want to go. Now, whose life is the life of being taken where he does not want to go and stretching out his hands in death? Jesus' life. And what Jesus is saying to Simon in that moment is, Simon, I'm going to make you Peter by bringing you into the shape of my own life. When you live and die as I've lived and died, you will become like me. And when you become like me, you will become everything I've called you to be. And not until then. Because the only way to become Peter 
to be saved from the conflict of being Simon and Peter all at once is to follow him. Think about this exchange because it's an exchange about how Peter knows himself. The problem throughout the Gospels is that Peter doesn't understand Jesus and he doesn't understand himself. And so Jesus brings him to this moment, this culminating moment, in which he says, Peter, look into your heart and tell me, do you love me? Now, we've all heard this story so much, I think it's taken the edge off of it for many of us. But think about what that would be like to be on the end of these questions from Jesus. Do you love me? Look in your heart and see. What would I say if the Lord were to say to me, look in your heart and see. Do you love me like you think you love me? I know you say you do. I know you give your life to, to ministry. But, but in your heart, at its depths, what's there for me? And the truth is, none of us know. And you can see Peter starting to wilt. At first, he insists, yes, I love you. And then the question comes again, do you? Yes, Lord, I I love you. And you can hear his voice start to break. And then Jesus asks a third time, and then Peter's heart does break. Peter, do you love me? And he says, you know. I, I think I love you. As far as I can tell, I love you. But you know the truth about me. And that is the beauty. Because the truth of the matter is, our future, our salvation does not depend upon what's at the depths of our heart, how sincere we are, and how aware we are of how sincere we are. He asks us these questions to draw our attention to the fact that we can't know whether or not we love him. But notice what he says to Peter. After he's put him in that place, he says, Peter, feed my sheep and follow me. Not, well, you have to go and sort out whether or not you really love me. Just forget that. Take care of your neighbor and follow me. And what the Lord says to you and to me this morning is, don't obsess about what's in the depths of your own heart. You can't know yourself yet that way. You can't know how sincere your faith is yet. All you have to do is feed his sheep and follow him. And someday you will know. Someday you will see him. And when you see him, you will be like him because you see him as he is. Someday he's going to give you a stone and in that stone is going to be your name. But until then, we just live toward the identity he's giving us. Here's the good news. I'm not myself yet. When I'm afraid of what kind of father I am, I can say, I'm not the father he's making me to be yet. When I'm afraid of what kind of husband I am, I can trust. He's not through making me the husband he intends me to be. That is my hope, that I'm not all that I'm afraid I am. He's not through. You remember the song we sang as kids? He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him a week to make the moon and the stars. He's still working on me. He's not done with you. So your past does not tell the truth about you, not all of the truth. Your failures do not tell all of the truth about you. Your sicknesses do not tell all of the truth about you. He's not through. The work is still in process. That's our hope. Stand with me and I'm going to share this last word. There's an old slave spiritual that I think captures the heart 
of the kind of hope that realizes I'm not who I am supposed to be yet. Imagine slaves beaten and malnourished and overworked and abused in nameless ways out in the field kept alive only by hope that someday who I am will be known. I'm not who my masters say I am. I'm not the slave I appear to be. And out in the field, those slaves are singing this song. Nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows who I am till the judgment morning. And I say to you this morning, whatever hurts are in you, however you fear yourself, however much dread you have about the ways in which you fail to be what you want to be, nobody knows who you are yet. You don't know. Your family doesn't know. Your enemies don't know. Only God knows what he's prepared to make you. He makes all things beautiful in his time. Let him work. I'm going to say this prayer and then Pastor Brent will come and lead us to communion. Lord, we do not want to hide from you. We have nothing to hide from you. Search us and know us. And we do not pray for you to make us what we want to be. We pray that you will make us what you want us to be. And give us again a hope that you will make us beautiful in your time. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.